Welcome to another episode of Rosebud, where memorable people share their memories. Cue the music. This week, I'm very excited because our guest is somebody who I know but don't know well. We've worked together over the years and um, instinctively, we've, I think, liked one another. So I was thrilled when I asked him to take part and he said, yes, I'd love to. If you know him, it's probably because you fell in love with the character he played, Bryn, in that wonderful sitcom Gavin and Stacey. He is Welsh. Uh, You might also have seen the four series of The Trip, where he went on a road trip through Europe with his friend Steve Coogan, and they both swapped anecdotes, reminiscences, observations, and incredible impressions. He is a remarkable impressionist. He's also a great actor and a singer and a television host. I've, I've appeared on Would I Lie to You, which is a very successful show that he helms. Uh, he is a remarkable talent. He's a man of a thousand voices, but I want to hear his voice. That's why I invited Rob Brighton to be my guest on Rosebud. Enjoy. Rob, my first question is always the same question. What is your very, very first memory? That's a really hard question because I don't have a clear memory that I could say to you, this is my first memory. I have a collection of images and sounds and smells from when I would have been very young. I have the the taste and smell of Weetabix with hot milk and sugar and a transistor radio. I have a memory of being in the bath at my grandparents' house. I have a memory of very vividly coloured stacking plastic cups in nursery school. But a specific memory is quite hard. I remember getting a golden arrow bike but I would have had to have been a, you know, a reasonable age by then. I would love to be able to, to say to you, I was three years old. Because all the memories are there, of course. They're all there. You know the way they're sometimes unlocked by a smell, aren't they? Yeah. So they're all there. And I think one day they'll invent a little electric device to you know, bring them out. So tell me, where were you born and who were your parents? I was born in Swansea, Killay, in a little nursing home called The Bryn. Ah. And years later, I went on to play a character called Bryn in Gavin and Stacey. Was that a coincidence, or did you give the author the idea of? It was a coincidence, and the the rather lame joke that I opened my (laughs) disappointingly selling autobiography with was... Imagine if I had instead been born at the James Bond (laughs) nursing home. Who knows what might have been different in my career. I was born there on May the 3rd, 1965. But we didn't live in Swansea. We lived in a place called Baglan, which is just next to Port Talbot. My parents, Howard and Joy. Are they alive still? Yes, they are. Very young parents, you see, at that time, as was the norm then. You know, so I think they would have been about 20 and 21 or Mm. around about that. And what sort of people were they? Tell us about your mother, first of all. Well, I am a combination, as we all are, of both my parents. So my dad was a salesman, and there's that quality to me. What was he selling? Cars. Oh, so he was, they they were high-end prices. He started off in a a showroom, Margam Abbey Motors, not there anymore, crushed by the extended M4 motorway. Margam is where Anthony Hopkins 
is from grew up in exactly the same street as my father at the same time. Gosh, do they know each other? Mr. Hopkins, Tony, call me Tony, uh, remembers my father's family. He would be closer in age to my father's older brothers. My father was the baby of the family. But he certainly remembered my uncles, Colin and Leighton. He, Anthony Hopkins, is an impressionist to rival you. He's I, amazing, yeah. I had breakfast with him once. Yeah. And he gave me the whole of the National Theatre Company. He'd, he'd known Laurence Olivier, he'd yeah. been in that. And he could do all of the people. He could do Olivier um, brilliantly. John Gielgud, you name it, he could do everybody. Is it, a, is, it, is it something in the water in South Wales? I don't know. It's, um, they normally get asked that about singing, of course, with Wales. Is, is it something in the water? Actor-wise, from Port Talbot, you've got Richard Burton, mm-hmm. you've got Anthony Hopkins, you've got Michael Sheen. Um, well, Michael Sheen does a lot of people. He certainly does. Do you do a Richard Burton? Oh, the greatest impersonator of Burton is Matthew Rhys, the actor. Matthew Rhys, I was doing a thing for ITV some years ago in New York, a, a special with Neil Diamond. Hear those names <laughs> fall to the floor. I know you like that kind I of thing. I love that kind of As I do. I love a name coming into a story. I, I do. I love the glamour of fame. So do I. And I can't stand people who accuse someone of being name-dropping. I go, yeah, and it's wonderful. Let's celebrate these people. So I was there making this show with Neil Diamond, and I invited Matthew along, who lives in Brooklyn, to come to a special concert Neil was doing at his old high school, Erasmus High School that he attended with Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. Not Streisand, Streisand. She's very particular about that. And in the car, going then from the concert back into Manhattan, uh, I started to do my Richard Burton, which I thought was a reasonable one. Oh, to be or not to be, that is the question. What a piece of work is a man in form and being, blah, blah, blah. And then Matthew started to do his. Well, I shut up pretty quickly. I know my place. His is so good. So good. Um, so get, get, back, get yes. back to your parents. Your, well, so, hang on. So, Ant- but Anthony Hopkins, first of all. So he... Yeah. Oh. he um, do you have you heard? I had that cassette tape that he made when he was at the National. I think around the time of Pravda in the mid eighties, mm-hmm. where he went into a studio and recorded a sort of a Christmas Carol type thing, and or a, a bit like a cross between Under Milkwood and the Christmas Carol. And he does Gilgood. Oh, I'm so very cold. And, and he does uh, Burton. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, come back. Come back with my baubles, my bangles, my beads. <laughs> and he does Olivia. Ah, all that sort of thing, you know. And he would also do Ralph Richardson and, and all those different people. So, yeah, Anthony Hopkins. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is just, uh, you know, interstellar talent. I wrote a biography of John Gilgood uh, with his blessing. And when I did the audio book, I began with a full flourish do, doing my Gilgood, you know, uh, and I thought this is going quite well. And then I got to Sir Ralph. Oh, 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 cocky. I, I thought this is going rather well. I made an attempt at Olivier doing exactly what you did just now, which is putting the tongue into the lower part of your, that is sort of the trick. Then I got to Donald Wolfitt. And I oh. thought, what do you do now? <laughs> and that is that as, unless you prepare these things. Yes. So your father is the same generation as Anthony Hopkins mm. and he becomes a car salesman. Yes. Uh, and is he a spivvy car salesman, a warm car salesman? What kind of car Very salesman warm. is he? Warm. Very warm. The kind of salesman that you buy from because you like the person. Yeah. And did you like him? Was he a good father? Was yeah. he a warm father? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Very. I mean, um, I'm very like him. I've got so many of his mannerisms, almost to the point where it becomes a little embarrassing, almost to the point where I'm a bit of a tribute act. <laughs> to him and I, you know and it is so strange because of course I'm 58 I've not lived with dad since I was 19 or something so you think about that so how can I have all these mad but when I'm talking to people and I I start gesticulating I go oh, I'm, I'm doing dad well it must be in the genes and you're <laughs> 
do you think? <laughs> yes, proving that he is your father. Well, yes. So your mother tells us. Now, who is she? What's she? My mother is, is Joy Bryden Jones. Uh, Bryden is, is, is the... I was Robert Jones at school. Dad was oh. a Jones. Uh, Robert Bryden Jones. You join equity, you can't be Robert can't. Jones because there's already a Robert Jones. So then I took my middle name as my surname. Now, Dad left school at about 15. Mum... Well, mum, mum did a degree as, as, a, uh, as a mature student years later. Mum's far more academic. So Dad more like me, you know, sort of gift of the gab, you know, da 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 But mum must have despaired because I, I, I got two O-levels at my first attempt, which is, the more I think about it, with each passing day, I'm more appalled by that. I was quite okay with it for years. And now at this age, I look back, I got two? I got five eventually, but, ev- but to start with, the two Englishes. What's mm. it's dreadful, isn't it? And what did she do as a young woman when well, when you were being born? When what? I was when I was very young, my memory is of her being around and looking after me. You know, different. She went on to teach then, and and then years later worked within the health service in in a managerial role. And your mother had three children, one of whom mm. died. Yes. And was that, were you aware of that when, when, is this a brother, a younger yeah, brother? Yeah, yeah, Jeremy. I think he passed away at about six months. It wasn't spoken about in the family much. I mean, now and again. I would, I was five when he was born. So at five years old, you are sentient and aware of what's mm. going on. But I have only one memory of that whole experience, which is quite a hazy memory of my mother crying on a sofa. That's all I have. I have no memory of my brother, of of being with him, uh, interacting with him, which is odd. No memory of it at all. But my mum, when we have spoken about it, said in those days... When something like that happened, the attitude was certainly not counselling and let's work through this. Right, crack on. Mm. So, and this was what they used to call sudden death syndrome. Yes. They didn't. It was unexplained. Yes, yes. and it yeah. was that sort of thing. With are oh, they should they be lying on their back or their front? Yes. It was all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And ha- has it blighted her? Uh, their life? Did, did they? No. They well. They went on to have my brother Pete three years later. Yeah. Now there, I can remember going to Neath General Hospital, driving past and knowing, oh, yeah, it's in there, there's a brother being born, da-da-da. I can remember all that. So I can only presume I've blocked it out. Yeah. Who was your first friend? David Williams. Oh, said immediately. This is clearly, he was clearly your first friend. What age were you when you met him and where were you? Well... See, the, these are questions that I think your parents can answer better because I think they'll have, they'll, my mother will say, oh, no, 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 it was, uh, it was Nicholas who, who lived on the hill. My first proper friend, my oldest friend, is David Williams, a Welsh chap from Swansea who I met when I was about seven and I'm still friendly with to this. And what did you get up to together when you were seven? We would ride our bikes around Baglan next to each other, imagining we were in the Ford Gran Torino driven by Starsky and Hutch. I would be on the left being Starsky. He would be on the right being Hutch. We would climb trees. We would build dens. We would play football. He was a big football fan. I just did it to to join in. Uh, We would listen to music together. Oh, what sort of music? His brother, John, who was eight years older than him, went to Earl's Court to see Rod Stewart on the Blondes Have More Fun tour and came back with the programme, the brochure, with thick things, I remember, full of pictures of Rod in his debauched pomp. (laughs) And we would look at this and go, wow. And did you have dreams together of the future? I mean, did you think, we'll be footballers, we'll be... He would have dreamt about being a footballer, I would imagine. 
because he was good, he loved sport. I would have dreamt about being on stage. And why was that from an early age? Why would you have dreamt? Because was there any heritage of that in your, with your parents? No. My mum said, said once, oh, and then, of course, there was, there was Bonzo the clown. I said, what? She said, there's a, I think she said there was a clown in the family. I've never really pursued this. A, an actual clown? Yes. The first school you went to where you met your friend, David? The, fir- no, the first it? school I went to ah. was in Porthcawl. Mm-hmm. See, Dad was doing quite well with work, so I was sent off to a little independent prep school. Ah. I've got an interesting school history. So I went off the little school called St. John's, which no longer exists. A day school or a boarding a school? A day school. Yeah. I think you could board, but I was a day pupil. And Eddie Izzard had been there a couple of years before me. Gosh. How bizarre. This is bizarre, isn't Well, it? Eddie and I have exchanged WhatsApps with each other, photos of ourselves at sports days just a few years apart. It was quite a, my memory of it, quite a twee. It felt very much in the manner of an English public school, but it was in Porthcawl, in Newton, in Porthcawl, in South Wales. Um, my father remembers taking me there on one of the days, and one of the teachers saying to one of the boys there, Whack a bath, get off the grass. <laughs> That's how my dad remembers it, right? But oh. this is in South Wales, this is in Porthcawl. So I went there for a bit, a few years. Then I went to a school in Swansea called Dumbarton House School. And at that school... I feel I've heard of that. Is that well, quite a well-known school? Catherine Zeta-Jones oh. was at that school. I mean, if you weren't, if, if, if people are not in, into name-dropping, this is an unfortunate <laughs> episode for them. But we can't deny it. Your childhood well, is peppered. I mean, what can I do? There's your dad and Anthony Hopkins. I, I mean, well, yeah. now you're at school with Catherine Zeta-Jones virtually. So she's a few years younger than me. And even at that age, she was known in the school for being part of the local theatre thing, ah. and dancing and everything. I didn't know her. I knew her, her parents. My brother was friendly with her younger brother. And years later, I got to meet her. The only time I ever met her was at the BAFTAs when she won for, I think, Chicago. And we go back, I think, possibly even to this very hotel that we're in now, the Grosvenor House, and we're down having the big meal afterwards. And somebody from her film company knew that we'd been at school together. So came up to me and said, would you like to say hello, meet Catherine? Mm. Now, I'd had a few drinks. I said, yeah, great. So I get taken over and she and Michael Douglas are stood like European royalty Mm. with a queue of people. (laughs) A queue, Giles, a queue. And this guy, this guy with not enough self-esteem, joined the queue Quite right. to congratulate Catherine. So I'm in the queue, and I can hear her at the end of the queue. Michael Douglas is stood there, like my supportive husband. And Catherine, with that curious mid-Atlantic, and why shouldn't she? She's lived over there that yeah. long. Thank you. Thank you very much. And then I would shuffle a little closer, <laughs> and I would hear... Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm in the queue. And I'm thinking, right now, what are you going to say to her? Don't make a fool of yourself now, Rob. And I'm getting closer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finally, it's my turn. I say, oh, congratulations on the BAFTA. Thank you. Thank you very much. I said, I went to Dumbarton. And she went, really? Really? Oh. I saw Mr. Allied yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Mr. Allied was the headmaster. And, and she, um, she instantly reverted to that. And it was rather lovely, I thought. Oh. So she was there at that school. And were there other girls? I mean, obviously, it was a, it was a co-educational school. Yeah, she, that, no, she was the only girl there. <laughs> was that? Well, you say that as though that's unusual. Well, it my, my, my friend Susie Dent, yeah. believe it or not, went to Eton. Is she? And she was the only girl there. How come? Because in the sixth form, wherever her local school was, they didn't do a subject that they did at Eton. So for the sixth form, she was sent to Eton. So she was... Wow. Isn't it extraordinary? She was in the same year as Boris Johnson, I think. Was she? Yes, exactly. Um, anyway, wow. that's... So, so you much can, like, there's so much I could say to that, <laughs> Charles, but let's not make it political. Um, but anyway, uh, mo- moving on, it's possible yeah. for there to be one girl in a boys' school. All right, fair but enough. But there were lots of girls. Who was... Did you have a, a first crush? Yeah, uh, And yeah. Who, who was that? Well, the, the, the prettiest girl 
in my opinion, was, was a girl called Helen Williams. I can't remember now what she looked like. And she went out with Glenwood Evans. Now, do you remember when you're at school, there would always be one or two kids who seemed supernaturally more mature mm-hmm. than the others. Yes. And Glenwood, I would say, was one of them. He, I mean, he was as if he was a middle-aged man. He was know? a man of the world. Exactly. And now, of course, you look back and think, well, ridiculous. So I might have been aware that, that Helen... Well, we did a... The first stage thing I ever did was a... We put on a stage production at that school of Star Wars, which I wrote with a few friends. I used to go around telling this story, and then David Williams said to me, you weren't the only one who wrote it, so I must amend this <laughs> I played Luke Skywalker and Helen was Princess Leia oh. and uh, I did we kiss at the end I can't remember but, but we, we, we did that that was at that school then I left that school because we moved then from Baglan to Porthcawl and but I went to the comprehensive then and that, that and I if I'm being very honest, I was, I was very scared because my view of a comprehensive school was Grange Hill yeah. on the television, which seemed very uh, scary because this school, Dumbarton, was very... Your mention of Grange Hill, I will interrupt you here, only because it's irrelevant, uh, because one of the people who was an admirer of yours was the late Elizabeth II. I wrote a biography recently of the Queen. Yes. And she was very much into Impressionists. <laughs> and she loved Impressions. And I was told only recently by proper friends of the Queen that they were not many years before her death at a dinner at Windsor Castle with the Queen, Prince Edward and his wife Sophie and just two other people. And the subject of Grange Hill came up. And the Queen did a routine, a routine lasting 10 minutes on Grange Hill. She played all the characters with the accents as a complete set piece. Isn't that extraordinary? No. Yeah. Wow. There you are. So it wasn't just you who was enjoying Grange Hill. Uh, while you were watching, Elizabeth II was watching too. Wow. Okay, well. So, so ba- but that, back was, to your that was what I thought... It was going to be like. It was going to be like. And so, so it was Porthcawl Comprehensive, which turned out to be lovely, lovely school. Um, I mean, much a bigger school than I'd been used to. And I have a memory of the first playtime in my mind, all the kids coming out of all the different buildings. Oh my God, wow, there's so many here. But it was a great school and it was where my love of drama could, because they had a great drama department, a wonderful, young, dynamic, brilliant drama teacher who is still a friend to this day. In fact, he just got his uh, MBE at Windsor Castle about three weeks ago and came to us for lunch. What's he called? After Roger Burnell. And he is, as it were, the first teacher who made a difference in your life. Made a big, yeah, a big or very, very important difference. Um, and to many other people as well. Because at that school, also there was Ruth Jones. My goodness. So I go, Eddie Izzard, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Ruth, Ruth Jones. Jones. Yeah. And is Ruth Jones the same sort of age as you now? She's about but too well. <laughs> in my show, I say, when I tell people I was at school with Ruth Jones, they say, what did you teach her? <laughs> uh, she's about a year, two years younger than me. Right. But we were in the school shows together. Ah. So we did Guys and Dolls and uh, Carousel together and West Side Story. And you became friends. Very, very good And friends. by then, you'd crystallised this view that Show business, entertainment, being on stage was going to be for you. Because that's what I loved doing, and I wanted then to go to drama school, not with any great uh, uh, desire to explore the human condition, but because I thought, well, I'd spend all day doing what I enjoy doing Mm. at school. Why were you so poor academically? Because you're not stupid. I think... um, I think that's the way my brain is. I think it was that. It wasn't that you were being distracted and just doing the shows, not taking any interest. Because was sport part of your life? No, no. not so really. So it was entirely, I want to be in the school of plays, yes. I'm going to be doing that. I loved that. I always liked entertaining people. For, you know, before I went to that school, if we went to visit another family, I would come out from behind the curtains and, and do a little thing, you know. Hello, Giles here, and I'm recording this segment at the JW Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. I'm delighted to tell you they're the generous sponsors of this series of Rosebud. Regular Rosebud listeners will know that I spend a lot of time at the hotel, and when I'm here, I like to think of the many famous guests 
more illustrious than me even, who've walked these halls before me. There's Walt Disney and his wife Lillian, who spent their honeymoon here in 1935. Or the greatest boxing champion of them all, Muhammad Ali, who stayed here in 1978. The Beatles played one of their earliest gigs in London, at the Grosvenor House, in 1963, and Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are among the many Hollywood icons who have been guests at the hotel. When you book your stay at the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel, you'll be part of this rich tradition of famous hotel guests. And I'm sure the staff will treat you like a movie star. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. Did you speak Welsh? No. Family? No, no. Now that's... That's very interesting. It's become very political, of course. But when I was a boy growing up in South Wales, there was no S4C. There was no dedicated Welsh language channel. What would happen is HTV, which is our ITV franchise, and BBC would opt out. And you'd get, and now on BBC One, it's we join Captain Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise for Star Trek except for viewers in Wales. <laughs> and we would have Nwyddion, which is Welsh for news. And it would always appear to me to be very depressing. Oh, Now, that might upset some lovers of the Welsh language, which, which I have since come to be very romantic about, and I, I now can't get enough of that language. So I didn't speak Welsh, and I did a documentary about this years later, exploring the Welsh language, and it took me a long time to um, get over that. Because it's strange, because you're growing up in a country and you literally don't speak the language. What was the first impression that you did? Probably Kermit the Frog, Bert and Ernie. Ooh. Well, give me a bit of Kermit the Frog well, and then t- tell me who Bert and Ernie are. After the onset of puberty, this became more of a challenge. Ah. Oh, this <clears throat> is quite hard now. Well, Bert and Ernie were the two. You must remember from Sesame Street, Bert and Ernie. Ah, yes. Oh, buddy, Bert. Oh, Bert. Ah, Ernie, I'm trying to sleep. Ah. Oh, gee, Bert. Oh, rubber ducky. And you can't talk like that. Uh, they were like an odd couple, but in puppet form. Yes. So the people of my generation did Bill and Ben in very much the same way. I oh. probably would. I probably would have done. Them. Oh, Well, I wa- I definitely watched. Bill and Ben. Oh, Hartley Hare. I used to do Hartley Hare from the ITV mid-morning show Pipkins. Do you remember that? I do. And Hartley Hare talked like this. Come on, pig. Hello. And he spoke like that. I did him. That must have been one of the first. Oh, wonderful. And people, of course, love that. Yeah, well, it was for me, you know, it it was never a thing... It was never a thing to beat the bullies. I was never really bullied other than one isolated incident when a rather aggressive pupil called John Edwards, who was known as Fat Ed, he was a little bit tubby, came up behind me in an underpass and headbutted me. That was the only experience I ever had of anything like that because I could do uh, voices and I liked to make people laugh. I, I never had a problem. But it, it annoyed him. Well, I don't know. Did you it? fight back? No, I was shocked. You ran away. By the t- Let's be clear about this, Giles. <laughs> I did not run away. But by the time I'd come to, <laughs> fat, fat Ed had left the sea. Oh, he'd run away. I'm not, let's not. No, again, you're putting words in my mouth. <laughs> no one said he ran away. But I'm going, oh, God, well, somebody just hit me. What's that? Oh, there he goes. Oh, my God. So here you are with eventually how many O-levels? First attempt, two, two, but I'd got a place at the Welsh College of Music and Drama. Oh. And for that, you had to have five O-levels, including maths, to get a grant. So I had to stay on. So I did three years in the sixth form. Uh, the first of those years was doing resits for all the O-levels. So initially, I got two Englishes. I went on to also get maths, drama, and economics. Yes, because you had the incentive, because you were going to go mm. and do what you most wanted to do. Mm. And then you went to this place. I mean, did you apply to any of the big national schools? 
Yes, I was rejected by RADA. Mm -hmm. I was rejected by Central. Uh, and why do you think you were rejected? I think I was very provincial. I think I was very naive. I think I was very young for my age. When I went to audition for RADA, my memory of it, or the story that has become my memory, because this is a podcast all about memories, it's fascinating to me what our memories, how they evolve. Mm. And you must be aware of this, that our memories become a memory of a memory. Of course. Our mutual friend, James Lovell, when I wrote my uh, autobiography, there was a piece, he, he and I were at college together and had a double act. And I wrote about us getting paid off at a gig at the Wikes Regis, no, not paid off, sent back on actually, even though we were doing terribly, at the Wikes Regis Working Men's Club. And I wrote about that evening and I showed it to James. I said, just checking now, this is what happened, isn't it? And he said, well, yes, but do you not also remember that evening, this, this, and this? And of course, my memory of that one evening had become about three yes. instances. But it was a four or five hour evening. Yeah. So, um, do you remember Tony Benn? Yes. You probably do Tony Benn quite easily. Tony Benn uh, kept a diary, and he had a memorable evening. And a few years later, before his diaries were published, he went to all the other people who were at the same dinner. There were five of them. All of whom, it turned out, kept diaries. And they all sent each other the diary entry for the same dinner. Their recollections of it was totally, every single one of them was a different account of the evening Incredible. and of who'd been brilliant and who hadn't been brilliant. So it, it's very subjective, isn't it? I think I'd love to see a good documentary about this subject because it is fascinating. Um, and especially if, you, if you're sort of in the public eye because you, you, you're asked questions, so, so I'm sure it's the same for you, you end up telling your story far more than yes. somebody who does not work in, in this field would do. And, and it becomes, and you sort of tell this version of your story, which is, which is true, but it's only a very thin sliver, isn't it? And, of course, you do intend to improve the story as the years go by. Well, you, you add do. little touches. Little you, you like to, to add to it. But, but, the, but, yes. so the, the, but the question... Oh, yeah, so, so my memory, then, of, the of audition. auditioning for RADA is that I come up to London. Oh, London, wow, ooh, you know, Cardiff was a big deal. And my memory is I go there to Gower Street and that the other auditionees all looked like Rufus Sewell with <laughs> Byronic hair and long coats and they stood holding the text thus. <laughs> and I'm going to do a bit from The Homecoming, Pinter. Oh. I'm going to sing from Carousel, My little girl, pink and white as peaches and cream, is she? I don't think Rada were looking for that. And... A piece of Shakespeare, Good. Julius Caesar, the mighty Tiber was raging, I dove in. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. The comfort is that Steve Coogan, do you remember him? Uh, indeed, I've heard of him anyway. Steve Coogan auditioned the same year oh. and also didn't get in. Well, there you go. What do these people know? And how were you with the Pinter? Well, I was probably... I would imagine that my performance brought to mind more than anyone else David Jason in Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> so perhaps, I mean, and, you know, good Lord, as comic actors go, you'd struggle to find somebody better, but perhaps not quite the menace. Of what Mr. Pinter was looking for. Some years later, when I'd achieved some, you know, some success and things were going well, I was at... We're going to drop places now as well as names. I was at the Ivy with my wife. My wife, I met her when she worked on the South Bank show. Is this your current wife or your first wife? My current wife. Very good. My final wife. Right. There shall be no more. That's the line to take. <laughs> <laughs> and we went out for dinner with Melvin Bragg mm. and his then wife. And... Well, wonderful, because without Melvin, we'd never have met. I'd never mm. have met Clay, see? And a few tables away from us was Harold Pinter and Lady Antonia Fraser. Oh, my goodness. 
At Melvin, of course, Melvin knows everybody in the arts. He said, there's... I'm doing Melvin Bragg. And we recognise it. He it's said, very good, yep, Melvin. I'm just going to pop over and say hello to <laughs> Harold. <laughs> I've had a couple of drinks by now. Bloody hell, he's going over to say hello to Pinter. So we then drift over. He's still talking. And Harold recognised me. And he said, ah, ah. And I can't do his voice. He said, ah, now you'll, you'll know this, he said. He said, we're just talking, we're talking about the different types of laughter. So I go, God, Rob, think, Rob, think. I said, well, yes. I said, yes, there are, of course, there, you, one thinks of the sort of laughter we hear now from a studio audience. And we compare it to the laughter we heard of the studio audience at a Morecambe and Wise show. Very different, you know. Yes, he went, yes, yes, yes. I thought, oh, <laughs> I've made a good point with Pinter. That's good. So emboldened by this, I say, well, I think I may have called him Harold. I think <gasps> I said, I said, well, it's, it's a wonderful thing you're here, Harold. I, I can't have done that. That's just me embellishing the story. I can't have done. I said, it's very nice to meet you. I said, because I, I, I auditioned for RADA many years ago and I did a piece from The Homecoming. And he went, oh. And Melvin is looking, I said, what there? where is he going with this? You know, <laughs> I could feel the room getting tense. I said, and I didn't get in. Oh, <laughs> I said, I can't help thinking. If you tried a little harder with the script, <laughs> things would have been very different. And there was a deathly oh. pause. You might almost call it a pinter <laughs> pause. In which I thought, oh Lord, what have I done? But then the pause passed and the great Harold Pinto went, <laughs> and laughed what I like to think was a sincere laugh. Melvin exhaled and all was well with the world. Well, you did well because he could take himself and indeed life quite seriously. So I hear. So you succeeded there. What's the first moment? That was, was it humiliating to, to not get into those? Where, did you go home bruised? No, it wasn't humiliating. No, not humiliating. It was disappointing. Yeah. It made you doubt your ability. But I also remember, so Rada and Central said no, but I do remember that when I went to Cardiff, which was also felt like another world to me, you know, uh, I do remember there feeling more confident, feeling this is within my ability. They responded far better to me singing the sweet song from Carousel. And they accepted me. And I went there and I loved it. What's your first memory of unalloyed bliss, of sheer pleasure? Wow. Wow. It can be a physical sensation. It can be smell or... Eating something or wow. a romantic moment or diving into the sea. It can be wow. anything. Unalloyed, a sense of... I, I have two or three. Go on, g give me yours and they may spur me on. Uh, when I was in my gap year, I was in America and I'd spent nine months between leaving school and going to university in America. And in California, this was the 60s and it was hippie time. And there was a hippie couple on the beach who had a beautiful daughter who was called Rusty de la Rosa. Okay? And I met her on two days. And I wasn't very old, and she was younger than me. I didn't know how old she was. I was 17, 18. She was 15, 16. But I fell head over heels in love with Rusty de la Rosa, with these hippie people. Uh, and we were on the beach, so we weren't wearing very much. And together we ran into the sea, holding hands. So that for me... Wow. And, and I, I don't... This, now, what is interesting is you asked me the question, I don't think that is a story that I've ever mentioned to anyone. It certainly isn't in my childhood memoir, which I have written. In fact, I don't think I've thought about it until I thought wow. unalloyed pleasure. That came streaming into my head just now. Well, I, I always remember... Uh, odd memory. Uh, I remember Sylvester Stallone being on Oprah, publicizing a Rambo film. He had long hair. And mm -hmm. he talked about, oh, you remember that, you know, like the, the teenage love when your heart is going to just burst out of your chest. And that stayed with me because when you, yeah, when I was a teenager, 
I'd never, I didn't have a girlfriend until I went to college. So at school, I pined after different oh. girls. And it, the, the, the girl, I talk about it in my live show, the girl that I played opposite in Guys and Dolls. So I was Sky, and she was Sarah. And we have to stand there singing, I've never been in love before. And my poor little teenage brain gets very confused because she's gazing into my eyes. Of course, in reality, she's going out with a surfer called Mike. <laughs> I barely came up to his chest, but... But I fell madly in love with her, and, and you. No, that so that would not be bliss, but but that would be. The the thought that bliss was, tantalizingly mm. close. Those intense feelings, but pleasure. I don't know how to answer that. Thank you so much for listening to Rosebud. Thank you, too, for spreading the word about it. I'm going to spread the word now about another new podcast that I think might intrigue you. It's called The Queen's Reading Room Podcast. And it comes from The Queen's Reading Room, which is a kind of hub for people who love books and want to know more about books, set up originally by Queen Camilla. And this is a new weekly podcast really for people who love books and those who wish maybe they loved literature a little bit more. It's really to inspire you by the, the, the bookish confessions of global literary heroes. So each week, uh, an actor, an author, a personality, somebody intriguing, people even who've appeared on Rosebud will invite the listener into their own personal reading room where they'll share with us the books they simply couldn't live without. So, who does Sir Ian Rankin read when, when he's feeling a bit low? Who picks him up? Where does David Baddiel stash his fiction? Which masterpiece has Anne Patchett given up on again and again? And each week, too, Queen Camilla herself uh, pops up and reveals some of her own all-time favourite reads. So that's the Queen's Reading Room podcast. If you like Rosebud, I think you'll enjoy that, too. So... You go to the college. Is the college where you find your first proper girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And who is she? Her name is, I'm still in touch with her, her name is Jacqueline Gilbride. And she, you kissed her? Yes. And that was, do you, do you recall the first, the sensation? Yes. I think it was outside the, well, 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 I kissed <laughs> Rian, who was playing Sarah, in Guys and Dolls, because we had to kiss, and I talk about this in the stage show, that it was at the end of I've Never Been In Love Before. In love before. And then we had, to, we had to walk together and kiss. Well, Lord Almighty, I hadn't kissed anyone. I, I had no idea what it was going to feel like. And she was beautiful, beautiful. And we walk up. And we kissed, you know, like an Elvis movie kiss, you know. <laughs> and my memory of it is that she was on fire. Her lips were aflame. And that's my memory of it. And my lips, my God, you know, this is incredible. I doubt that that was what she was experiencing. But that was that, which only made me adore her even more. But that was a stage kiss. The f and there was a girl one night at the at the youth club or youth wing who grabbed me and did a large, you know, uh, like wide-mouthed frog sort of kiss when I was like, oh, and I, and I didn't know what to do. Then I go to college. Oh, and, and you see, I, I would go to the discos. Now, I didn't drink alcohol at 16, 17, where the other boys would. And I would always be amazed that at the end of the disco, they would be snogging these girls. And these are boys who I would consider to be rather Neanderthal. You know, they, mm. I, you know I was aware that, well, I wasn't the tallest. I had terrible acne, but I could string a sentence together. I could make people laugh. I could do that. And there I'd be at the end of the night, you know, the Christmas one. So this is Christmas. And they'd all be... And I'd be, oh, how's this? Because... They'd lost their fear of yeah. rejection. I never lost that. So I then go to college and I meet Jack and she's a, a, a year older than she's a year older than me. She's doing a postgrad course. And I'm attracted to her and we talk. It's a great name for a girl. 
Yeah, short for Jacqueline, of course. I imagine so. You, you, you put that I, together. I put you that, work that out. Yeah, I'm quite quick. <laughs> quite At times. quick. Fair play. Oh, it's incredible, Giles, with the way he could, his, mind, his mind worked. Um, and... I remember that there'd been a social night at the bar at the college and then we're outside is my memory of it and, and we kissed there. And then, and that's sober, totally sober, you know. And that was that, that was the beginning of that. Who was your first wife? Did you, marry, did you meet her at college? Or I you met her, her no. Uh, well, now here's the thing. She is not in show business, but it's in my book. Her name is Martina. Lovely woman. Tennis player? Uh, yes, that's right. A tennis player, yes. <laughs> Never really felt... You know, no. <laughs> uh, mother of my three oldest kids. Very good. So we all... Your family. I adore that, her. Yeah. It's all lovely. But I never talk that much about no, her in this public arena. But are the, 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 your firstborn, is that yes. an important moment in your life? Oh, huge. The arrival of your firstborn. Huge, huge, huge. I mean, can you remember what happened? Massively. Uh, Katie now 29, didn't know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, mm-hmm. took us a while trying for about two years, and there we are, and long, relatively long labour, out she comes, and it's a girl. Wow. I'm, I'm one of two boys, as, as you know. Mm. So, oh, amazing. And this little girl, my little girl, you know. Yeah, I mean, that is a hu- huge moment. Huge moment. Why did I think you'd fainted? I tell a story in the show. No, no, my, my, I think my dad fainted oh. when I was born oh. or had to sit down. Oh, your dad fainted and the midwife fainted. Everybody that, fainted. That's right, that's right. Everybody that's right. fainted yeah. when you were born. Yeah, <laughs> yes. and, I, and I, um, I, what happened was they said, you it's a boy your- and it works. Because I, um, oh, you did, yes. I doused the delivery room. Amazing. Yeah. To come out giving your all. Thank you very, very much. Very good. So you had three children. Yeah. And have you been a good father to them? Wow. Do, what a question. But what do you think? I would like nothing, I'll get emotional now. I would like nothing more than to be a good father. Yeah. I've tried. You know, uh, means, matter, means a lot to me. But uh, Because it will have been difficult. We're not talking about your first wife, no. but you then have a second wife and a second family. That's right. And it may be, maybe not, difficult for the older children mm. when this happens, mm. for them mm. not to... T- mostly people take oh, the yeah, mother's listen, side listen, and all of it's, that. It's, it's not the ideal. The ideal is you meet someone yeah. and you do the classic nuclear family yeah. and da-da-da. In my case, I can say with great sincerity... We are a very functional, happy, blended, to use Mm. a very modern word. Use a very modern word, darling. (laughs) Blended family. That's a bit of key, isn't it? Makes you think you're all in a blender together. Um, My boys, who are now 15 and 12, adore their older siblings and vice versa. So it's it's all worked out. But... I've tried to be a good father, and I've certainly, my career is very much second to that in terms of the jobs I take and where I go. You know, oh, you're going to be in Lord of the Rings, you're going to be in filming in New Zealand for 10 months. Not a chance. I wouldn't do that in a million years. I mean, they're not asking, but if they did, (laughs) I, I, I I would not do it. I don't see how any of those actors that do that can have a happy family life. When you come out of college, what's your first job? Well, I, I'm a radio DJ because I left early. Because oh. why, I, I'd been interested in radio when I was uh, a kid. I, did like, I had an above-average interest in radio, and I used to record little radio shows on a, onto a cassette with me as the DJ. And then while I was at college, went on to a Radio Wales radio show with a double act, with a comic character I had called Tony Casino, who was sort of, you know, poor man's Tom Jones. Um, And I got spotted by a producer there. Then one of their presenters was going away on holiday, so could I sit in on the early show? And then would I take over full time? Because he was moving up to a better show. 
So I left college. Well, I think it's the, you did the right thing. Mm -hmm. I, I knew the head of the Guildhall School of Speech and Drama, uh, who's called Jill Cadell. She was the mother of uh, Simon Cadell. Yeah, from he was a good friend of and, yours, wasn't he? And she always said, if you get a good job while you're at college, go and do it. You'll learn more doing the job than you can learn going carrying on here. So you probably did the right thing. The only caveat to that for me is that it was a job as a presenter. Yeah. And I was, what I wanted to do, and, and you know, when I was at college, it was going to be, you know, comic performance. I mean, that's what I was doing, was comic stuff. Although, you know, I like to think I, I could also do the, the, the straight stuff. But I, so then I went down a road, it, it took me off at a tangent, and it was quite hard to get back into what I wanted to do, which was acting. And your breakout moment is what? Your first two, time? 2000, uh, very, very clear answer to that. The year 2000, two shows come out in the autumn of 2000. Marion and Jeff, a series of 10-minute monologues, 10 of them, and Human Remains, six half hours with Julia Davis. Uh, Marion and Jeff I did with Hugo Blick, wrote them with him, he directed them. They're, they're very strong, very good piece of work. And they and did in conjunction with Steve Coogan, who I'd met with his production company. So we had the clout of that behind us. That changed everything. I'm being in the Sunday Times magazine profile interview. I'm winning Newcomer of the Year. I'm going to this, I'm doing that, did it a boom. Everything changes. Well, we're not going to talk about the glory years, great Good. as they've been and wonderful as they've been and so much we've enjoyed you. We're talking about memories. Mm. And given that your youthful memories were to be a great performer, great stage performer, do you feel, actually, why have I not yet given, or maybe you have and I don't know about it, my Malvolio? Why did I not do Beatrice and Benedict? Why didn't I, why did the RSC not come knocking on my door? Well, I... Or maybe they did. Well, yes, without being immodest. Um, how do you answer a question of that without sounding a bit full of yourself? When those opportunities came, mm -hmm. I already had children. I've had young children for a long time, one way or another. I've done some plays. I did A Chorus of Disapproval with Trevor Nunn, which was a 12-week run. I did Future Conditional with Matthew Warchus, six-week run. I did The Painkiller with Kenneth Branagh, eight-week run. Theatre takes you away from the family entirely. This idea, oh, we pop into town in the evening. No, you don't. It's exhausting. Come Sunday, all you want to do is rest your voice. So, uh, oh, I mean, only this week, lovely offer to do something. But I can't. It's, but I will, I will, once the boys have flown the nest, Ah, I will. So that's why. So we may yet see your King Lear. I not King, no. Well, I, I don't eventually. Think, I don't think, well, I, I can't see that, but certainly Willie Loman is very appealing to me. Um, you know, son, I'd love to do a Sondheim Yeah, because uh, you musical. like singing. I love singing. I love singing. And yes, but so that's the reason. I can give you a very, very clear answer. That is why. And that's why. And you don't have regrets about this. You don't think, No, oh. because I'm a firm believer in you can't have everything. Oh. I'm a firm believer in that. And I think a lot of people who, who have these incredible heights within their career, it comes at a price. And I'm not willing to pay that price. Gosh. And you don't think when you die, mm. you'll be thinking, oh, but I could have done this. Not in a million years. I think when I die, I'll be thinking, I could have spent more time with my kids. That's what I'll be thinking. And are your kids your proudest achievement? Well, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's far more important than any TV show or film or comic performance. You'd be a monster to think otherwise, wouldn't you? Well, maybe, maybe. Although I think there are people who, I think there are people who, who the, the, the work is more important to Indeed. Them. I mean, I, I think, I, thinking of, for example, the great actor of the 20th century, Laurence Olivier, mm -hmm. some people thought he was a monster. Well, there and we are. Having had conversations with his son, Richard, yes. clearly the family did come second to his yes. towering ambition. Yeah, well, good for him, but... Um, and of course, in the long run, he will be remembered as the great actor of the 20th century. Again, good for him, all right. There and that are. doesn't, you don't mind oh, that? No, because it means nothing. It means nothing when you're gone. 
But what matters is how your family feel about you, how they remember you, because any critical opinion of you is entirely subjective. No, 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 no. And the gift for funny voices and for brilliant impressions, it is, it's such a skill that you can do and you do it instantly and it's so attractive and amusing. Uh, do you sometimes feel you're hiding behind... I mean, does it matter? It's Not a- really. No, I don't. I don't. A, a bit like, um, a bit like, uh, you know, the, I don't think that with me it was to avoid the bullies. No, I think that's a very easy narrative. You think it's glib? Yeah, I think. I think. Well, I think it's very easy. It's a very easy thing for people to go. Oh, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what it is. I don't think it is. No, I think it's. Uh, I, I think it's just. I, I like to entertain people. Mm. I like to make people laugh. And you do. I like that. It's interesting, because you're a funny combination, because talking to you now, your family comes first, clearly. But when I've met you in the past, I've always, I mean, of course, I've admired you, but I've always felt you actually were, though jokey, a fiercely ambitious person. Gosh, that's interesting, yeah. You always seem to me to be somebody who is wanting to achieve, and you've manifested what you, you've wanted to do things, and they have happened. That's, I mean, do you see yourself as an ambitious person? Well, that's so interesting, because I remember years and years and years ago, uh, our mutual friend James Lovell at college, and uh, another guy, Tom Freer, and I, uh, an actor, and I remember being with Tom years ago, while I was still at college, and I said, oh, about ambition, he went, what? He said, you're one of the most ambitious people I've ever met. Mm. And I was genuinely surprised manifesting itself, I was very much somebody who visualised success in a daydreaming kind of way. Uh, When I was struggling to get auditions and stuff, I would, to go to sleep, I would imagine I was on Parkinson. And I would imagine myself sitting there and him saying to me, have you had the most remarkable career? I mean, the wonderful array of stuff that you've done. And... And I would sit there being interviewed by Michael mm. Parkinson. And I realize now, yeah, that I was, I was visualizing and I was, and I did end up on Parkinson. And as you came down the stairs, do you think, isn't this strange? I was terrified. Oh. Oh, I was terrified. Did you do well? Was it okay? No, no. Because no, you, you were too nervous. Yeah, it was okay. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was, but I certainly didn't make any particular impression. Uh, one of my failings can be to be a little too deferential, a little too... Mm. I, I do put my heroes on pedestals, and sometimes, I mean, that can be quite charming, but it can be a little bit, eh, you know. Um, and I certainly admired Michael... And, yeah, I was a bit too, oh, gosh, wow. The other thing you managed to do is you've made yourself handsome. <laughs> I don't quite know how you've done that. I wasn't expecting you to say that. No, because What I, do you mean by that? Well, I've looked at pictures of you when you were younger, and I think you've turned yourself. And yeah. I don't know quite how, you've obviously, were you conscious of that? Well, my hair came back mysteriously. Good. We, we still don't know how that happened. Well, it's amazing, can I say? I mean, it's, I would love to, in a nice way, I'd love to run my fingers through it. All these and things s- are possible, Charles. Certainly my wife would adore to run, but I mean, you, you do, you look very, very good. It's unfair. I think a, a lot of men can look more palatable as they get older. I, you're absolutely right. I, I do, and I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. That I as, think a, that's true. as a boy, you might have had weaknesses, but now you are older. Well, I, I had terrible acne as a teenager. I mean, yeah. really bad. And I still have the acne scarring on my face, which I hate. You know, if I could change something. And did that, that blight your teenage yeah. years? Well, yeah. Again, really interesting because what happens when you have uh, really bad acne? is that, of course, your family's instinct is to play it down because they don't want to upset you. Mm. So for a long time, oh, it's not that bad. No, it's okay. (laughs) When I eventually went to a dermatologist in my early 20s, (laughs) I'll never forget, he went, chronic acne. Do you all right? I didn't know it was chronic. I thought it wasn't that bad. Uh, He brought people in from the other room, did he? To say, we've never seen a case like this. Come and see this. (laughs) Incredible. Um, So... um, yeah, um, and now when I'm out in the street, 
I'll see young kids with terrible acne and I'll want to go up to them and speak to them and say, mm. whatever you do, don't do what I did. Don't, this is very unglamorous, isn't it? Yeah. But don't squeeze them. Don't, because it's all about breaking the surface of the skin. Right? Oh. That's what you mustn't do. So you can have as many spots as you want. Just let them pass. Once you squeeze them, because you, you, what you do out of frustration, oh, oh God. Okay. And then you break the skin. And that creates a scar. And then you get the scar oh. and you get the, I'm an expert on this. Yeah. Um, well, we're coming to the end. And I have to ask you now for your first thoughts about what you've learnt from life that you'd like to share with others. What have I learnt? What you, that you would share to people listening, the lessons that life has taught you. I've learnt that hard work is important. Resilience, tenacity, as important, if not more important, than talent. If you can't get in, try another way. I mean, my career is testament to that. I've learned, disappointingly, it's better to be nice. It's better to be a nice person to work with. But there are plenty of successes who are not. I always remember something Steve said to me years ago about someone who will remain nameless. Uh, he's, he's, he's a tit, but he's a talented tit. And Steve had that... Not cold-eyed, that's not fair. Beady-eyed. Steve was, mm. when I said earlier about I put people on pedestals, he doesn't. He sees, it's really interesting, the, the two of us. Uh, he's not like that. He's another manifesto, though, isn't he? With great ambition. Yes. His ambition to be a film actor and a film but star. But he, in a far more pragmatic way. So I always remember Steve saying, Is, uh, you, you know, I, I used to look at like the young ones and, and Fry and Laurie, and, and I would think, yes, this is their time, and eventually it will be my time. Now, I would never have thought that. I would have gone, oh, I'd love to do what they do. Gosh. But I wouldn't have had the, the pragmatism or the... Um, he was very confident in his talent, as was I, but in a different way. Uh, he aims higher. Who was your first hero in a global sense? Elvis. Oh. Love Elvis. And then acting-wise, Dustin Hoffman. We look for, you know, I, I, you, you look, it, there's a narcissism. You ask someone who their favourite actor is, right? And there's a narcissism. So for me, it was always the shorter, darker ones. So Hoff, uh, the joke I used to have was, so for me, I always, the, the, sensu, the, the, the shorter, sensual ones, uh, Pacino, Hoffman, Corbett. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Your Ronnie Corbett there reminds me. Uh, I've heard some wonderful addresses at memorial services, but yours at Ronnie Corbett's, even thinking back, getting tears. Oh, in the thank eyes. you, Giles. What a lovely thing. He to was say. a lovely man. Of, of all the impressions you do, is he who, who's the one that you like doing most? I like doing Ron because I was so fond of him. I, I, I was, again, going back to the thing of saying, you know, gosh, wow. I never really got over the fact that we were friends. And I could phone him up, you know, and. I've, I've come to learn as I've got older. I had quite a lot, because I, I got to know people like so Barry Humphreys, mm. uh, Tom Jones a bit, all these people I idolised as kids and become people I can call and say hello to and spend some time with. Wow. And for a long time, I nonetheless would often find myself thinking, oh, but they don't, they don't really want to talk to me. Are they Are going to get bored of me? But now I'm now 58, and I'm now friendly with younger generation people like James A. Caston like that and I now understand it no 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 you love the young the younger generation coming up because you kind of feed off it almost and you want to be relevant to them and so I, I've changed my view of that and I understand now why Ronnie was always happy to have lunch and want to talk and Barry Humphreys I spent a lot of time with, with Barry and talking about performance but so Ron, yeah, I mean, I only ever impersonate people I like. I, I never do, and you know, so someone like that, the, 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 the former president of America has a gift of a voice. There are so many mannerisms. But of, of course, I feel that he's such a malign influence on the world that I, I would, oh, I couldn't bear to. But all the people I do, the kind of love letters, and you know, no one more so 
than Ronnie, where I sort of, you know, realized that I, I could do the voice quite easily. <laughs> well, I think let's finish with Ronnie Corbett. But most of all, it's been lovely talking to you. Uh, and you now uh, are going to be me as an older person. You can be the younger person that, whose company I enjoy. So thank you very much for being here on Rosebud. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, my thanks to Rob Bryden. Thank you so much for listening to Rosebud this week. We love knowing you're there and we love hearing from you. So do keep in touch. Keep listening and keep recommending us, please, to friends and family. Before I go, it's time for some of your first memories. We've had an email from Trisha Dewhurst. Dear Giles, one of my first memories is of being at my little kindergarten, which took place in the vicarage of our parish church. We listened to stories under a huge tree in the garden. We had small bags made out of fabric that hung on the back of our chairs where we kept our crayons. I was often given the task of emptying the teacher's teapot at the end of morning break into a drain in our playing area. It was a curious task for a small child, but the pungent smell of stewed tea is one I will always remember, and as a result, I now only drink peppermint tea. (laughs) Oh, is that a most unusual recollection? But it's interesting, isn't it, how these childhood memories actually, you know, permeate our entire lives. We'd love you to get involved. What's your very first memory? Or perhaps you're just friendly and want to say hi. Well, if so, it's simply, well, all you have to do is email me. Hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Hello, H-E-L-L-O at rosebudpodcast.com. so much for listening and I'll be with you next time. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts and music by Phil Leppard. <laughs>